Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today is an ultra-endurance athlete from Cardiff in South Wales who over the last 10 years has raised over £125,000 for various charities and was an Olympic torchbearer for the London 2012 Olympics in recognition of their incredible work. Their introduction to ultra running was running from Boston to Austin, which is um, (laughs) nice and rhymes in the USA, with their brother and two friends. Since then, it's been a case of relentless forward motion. In 2019, they became Wells' first ever competitor in the notorious Badwater 135 ultramarathon, renowned for being the hardest foot race on the planet. In 2020, they set a new fastest known time for the 870-mile Wales Coast Path. I hope that's the correct number for it. I might be corrected in a second. Beating the previous record by just two hours and 19 minutes. In 2021, they then set a new record running the length of Great Britain while summiting the highest peaks in Scotland, England and Wales. They are now a race director of Pegasus Ultra Running, which they manage with their partner, and it is a reflection of what a thoroughly empathetic and inclusive person they are that there are no cut-off times in their races. They are emphatically, in my opinion, an incredible role model as a human being, not just as an athlete, and I'm so delighted to welcome them to Running on Joy. So from the off, thank you so much your time and um, I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves further in the manner of their choosing. Hi Fran, thank you for having me on. Um, that's probably the like, most nicest intro I've ever had. Oh. So, yeah, I'm, I'm touched by that, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, my name's Rhys Jenkins, I'm, I think I'm 35 years old. <laughs> god, it's been a long week um, and it's only Monday. I can't even, oh my god, what was it? Um, yeah, I am... <laughs> an ultra trail runner um, from South Wales, correctly, yeah, from Cardiff, Penarth, just outside of Cardiff, um, and yeah, I guess I fell into the sport in 2010, when you quite rightly said, ran across America and um, did not know what the hell I was doing, and somehow survived, nobody died, and we raised a ton of money for charity, 
Um, yeah, I think you summed me up better than I could sum myself up, to be honest. So, yeah, you really touched me on that. Thank you. Oh, bless you. <laughs> and it's just, it's so lovely to connect. And uh, just before um, we came sort of live onto the podcast, I've also met Reese's um, new baby, and he's a new dad, which is amazing, and has had quite quite a week of it. So, um, <laughs> so it just makes him agreeing to, to have this conversation all the more wonderful. And we, we might hear baby getting a getting an appearance at different points in the conversation who knows (laughs) was there anything that I missed out in my intro I know you've done so many things Reese. was there anything else that I didn't reel off that there's a ton of stuff which is um I've I've done over the years but you've basically you've covered everything I'm very proud of and I think the thing I'm most proud of is the money that's been raised for charity and all the different causes behind that and the reason for doing that um that's always my main driver and my main focus so yeah challenge wise i think i've done two or three every year since 2010 so i wouldn't want to bore you with them all you've got the cool ones in there definitely okay we'll just go there there's a few might crop up along the way but i'm really interested reese what was like what was growing up like for you and family life god what was growing up like well i have a brother who's eight years older than me so i, I think we it's like that age, it's quite a big gap, but you're still very close. Um, and growing up, I was into team sports, so football, rugby, and not really an outdoors sort of uh, kid growing up. If you told me I was going to be a runner when I was older, I, I still struggle with the term now that I'm a runner slash trail runner, whatever you want to categorize me as. Um, I, I would have said, you know, having a laugh, I'd, I'd want to play rugby, football, I, this is my focus. Being in Wales, you sort of, you know, pigeonholing for that playing rugby and that's what I did I was quite overweight as a child um quite yeah I'd say I was obese I was a prop forward so let's give you an idea of the size okay. I was um I had a nickname called burger boy growing up so I, I ate a ton of food and uh I guess maybe 13 14 years old I found the gym and sort of went into that aspect trying to make myself physically stronger mainly for rugby and football noticing that an effect behind that and then 20, 2006, I uh, went and spent the summer over in America uh, teaching at a summer camp and met one of my best friends now, Rusty Tolliver, whilst working over there. He just introduced me to getting up at the crack of dawn and going for a run in the beautiful uh, Pennsylvania mountains of America. And you, you saw deer, you had like mist over the trails. It was just absolutely picturesque. And I noticed that, that was like an elevation as well. It, it was a struggle to start off with, but by the end of the summer, by the end of summer camp, I'd noticed a difference with my fitness and then mm. took that back home and noticed a difference in my performance playing rugby and football because I actually put a lot of effort into running. Not effort, but just, you know, enjoyed it and went the adventure. And it just continued from there, really. From 2006, 2010, the first race I ran was... I ran two half marathons uh, from Effley in West Wales. It's flat as it comes. It's like March, February time, so the weather's terrible. Uh, but I just remember finishing that event and going, oh, this hurts, but I, I think I could go further. And then signed up for like, my first ever marathon in, I think it was 2009. I've only ever done two or three organized marathons. And that was my first one was Las Vegas. And it was December time. And I wasn't really the smartest tool in the box is that the right term I don't know <laughs> and I just booked it went to Las Vegas wanted to have like an adventure whilst having a bit of a party with my friends didn't really clock but it's in the desert obviously I knew it was in the desert but not desert time 
around wintertime is freezing cold it's not boiling hot yeah. it was actually in fact one of the coldest races I've ever done <laughs> I just remember regretting it I pulled my hamstring like 23 miles in so I hobbled the last three miles um, but then I got to the end and you had that surge of emotion and you're just like oh this is really cool I think I can go further but you know who knows and then a year later or not even a year later half a year later uh, Rusty my best friend so we you get chatting as you do and we discuss and just I, don't think, I guess having an adventure meeting back up and just uh, you know spending some time together and we both separately came up with the idea of doing a run we weren't necessarily sure of where that would be but we wanted it to be like a couple of months we wanted it to be a proper adventure my initial thought was running across America just as you do because that's all I knew um, <laughs> And his was, he was actually from Texas in Austin, and he was living in Boston at the time. Um, yes, it rhymes, but actually that wasn't the reason we we ran it. Um, but it does sound cool, and it was a lot easier to like push the people Boston to Austin, 2,000-mile run. And um, we just jumped in at the deep end, didn't have a clue what we were doing, blagged Puma as a sponsor. They gave us a ton of kit and shoes, and we managed to, yeah, do it in 90 days, 2,000 miles. It was all pretty much on road. Um, which was laborious, is that the right term? It was just monotonous. You just get up each day and you didn't know where you were staying because you didn't know how far your body could carry you. We had a crew of two people, so it was me, Rusty, my brother Scott, and then Adam and John, who were the crew, and sort of they documented it as well. So they got a load of footage, I think, like well, two or three months worth of footage of like, seeing us each and every day. It was a, a cool adventure, and I think that's where I sort of learned my trade today. Um, it was jumping at the deep end, see if you could sink or swim. And we sunk a lot, but managed to swim by the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite incredible going, but first of all, like, pretty jammy doing your first marathon in Las Vegas. That sounds, <laughs> it all sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Even though it was freezing cold. <laughs> but it is a massive jump from going from that to then I'm going to run 2000 miles from Boston to Austin. And had you always been someone to kind of push yourself even before that? Had you always had kind of high expectations for what your you could potentially do in, in different areas of your life? Or? I, I wouldn't say it myself, but I get reminded of it quite often by my wife. I'm a very competitive person. I'm so much, I can't even take part in the local rounders game because I'm likely to just like hit the ball really too hard and then take the weight too seriously. I'd never admit that, but that's what she tells me. Um, and yeah, I, I, growing up, I wanted to achieve, I wanted to go bigger, better, stronger, further, faster, whatever you want to. You know, I was always focused on being a, my best self, I guess, physically. Um, but then, yeah, with the the 2000 mile run I didn't really look at the distance yes I knew the distance but it didn't really phase me it didn't maybe I didn't actually understand it I was quite naive with it mm -hmm. I just sort of went it's an adventure I want this adventure what will be will be with the distance and we spent the first maybe two or three weeks of our bodies just breaking and I mean like each and every day they'd be breaking like shin splints pulled muscles losing toenails blisters all this stuff which you're just like oh my god I don't want to get up and do this all again I remember one day I woke up and my left side of my foot was just so badly blistered along the whole thing so you barely put the shoe on it it really hurt um shin splints like what Chip Rusty who got me into running that's a bit in, in 2006 um well, whilst we were doing this run he um had shin splints and I just remember with shin splints you sometimes get a bubble and he took a needle and like popped the bubble on his shin 
And I just remember grimacing, just thinking that is not a good idea. Um, and he drained the fluid out of this bubble on his shit. It was really gruesome to see. Um, but yeah, sorry, back to your question. I'm just going off on hands in here. Um, yeah, growing up, I was, yeah, I'm not the fastest. I'm not the smartest. But I always just want to keep on going and try and find my limit. Um, and that challenge, that adventure, was the unknown. I didn't have a clue what it was going to feel like. Even looking back now, I remember probably 10% of the whole thing. I, unfortunately, I didn't really write down a lot of that time. I was more just mainly focused on the moment, just right, taking it all in. End of the day, you're battered, so you're not really taking note. Right? There's a few uh, video diaries out there, but we ended up giving that up like after two months, um, after a month or so, because we were just knackered. You just wanted to sleep. Um, technology wasn't really the best around that time anyway. I remember losing my crap with like a BlackBerry at the time and they used to have puck codes on them and the yeah. puck code had somehow reset it and then not, I didn't know what it was and it blocked me out the phone. I just remember literally that little thing tipped me over the edge and lost my shit completely. Sorry. Um, it's okay. My mind completely over this small little thing, which looking back now, you're like, ah, oh, God. But yeah, it all becomes quite, um, you're living out of a hotel room with the same port over you three months, 90 days, how long that is. It's very intense by the end of it. And it, you sort of, now you look back and remember all the fun moments, but you also do have the negative moments and the points where you, you did struggle a lot to get through each day. We all struggle to get there. I guess sometimes people just see the finish line photo and they forget about the rest. And that's the case with so many things, isn't it? But you've had to go through the process of, well, as you say, like witnessing each other popping the bubbles on your shins and things and then <laughs> and losing bits and pieces along the way. And what about, so that was kind of like your little foursome community, but I imagine you connected with a lot of people actually along the way too. So what was that experience like? That was amazing. I, I was relatively young at the time. I think I was 21, 22, what was it? 2010, I'm 24, no, so, no, 22, 23, 24, I'm not too sure. Um, I was really young and sort of didn't really have much of a, I didn't travel much as a child and I didn't really see the world. And uh, I guess going to American summer camp was my escapism. It was my, my adventure, my time to learn. And then the run itself, it was just uh, an exposure to different uh, people. Um, from different states. I think we ran through like 10 or 12 different states and it, it varies completely across state lines. Um, it was just amazing. Like some people were just, it's all the earth. They would let you stay on the floor of their house. They would, because you're running on the same road each and every day and that's a long bloody road. People would be going to work in the 6 a.m. in the morning. They'd see us. They'd be coming back from work later on in the day and they'd be like, what the hell are these Muppets doing? And they'd grow and They'd find the support crew and they'd ask them. And sometimes they would wait for us and say hello and cheer us on. I remember some people went home and brought some cupcakes. Another couple like literally came out and just gave us an envelope, like $200, and just said, use that to pay for whatever hotel you're staying in tonight. Um, you had the opposite. You had some negativity, as you would do going that far across America. I remember one guy chucked the bottle of water out the car at us, and it, it wasn't giving it to us it was literally just chucking it at us and it, it missed my head by like not that far at all and I've got a big head so like that would have, it was quite easy to hit and somehow missed me um I just remember thinking oh that was a close one um being on the road in wet weather and having the cars literally half foot away from me on the side is quite intimidating it's I remember one morning we went to start and there was like a tornado um 
warning going on the radio. And we just didn't know what the hell to do. We were just, what do we do? We just sat in the car and just waited and hoped that whatever was coming just didn't hit us. And it didn't hit us, thank God. But I just remember that was like a, another wake-up call behind it as well. And then back to your question about the people, like, yeah, um, 95% of people are incredible. Yes, you had a bit of negativity, which you would do. It's just life, isn't it? Um, and you can probably hear my little one screaming in the background right now. Um, yeah, I made a lot of friends from doing that as well. We stay, stayed in a place called Magnolia, Arkansas, and the local community saw us. They invited us to stay in this like amazing townhouse, put us up, and Rusty and my brother managed to uh, get a, a tummy bug, and they were sick. So we couldn't run the next day. I mean, they were really sick, really bad. And we were supposed to check out this amazing... And they just went, don't worry about it, spend another night. And like, they just really rallied around us. They were bringing us soup, food, drink, everything you could imagine just to get us better again. It was... Um, yeah, that place has a really special place in my heart, even. It's, um, yeah, still keep in touch with those people. And that was, what, 12 years ago now? That's amazing. That's, that's even better than school friends that you keep for a while because these ones you've been with through choice. So. <laughs> They, like, the people also, like, they, they still, like, donate to different charities, which I'm running for, and it's completely, it's nice that they followed the journey, and it, it's yeah. just, you build those relationships, I guess, and the people that I was running with was all Rusty, Scott, and John, and Adam, like, you still have that bond with them, because you've gone through this experience as well, so, yeah, you do build an amazing relationship throughout it. Sometimes it cracks and fractures, but it's one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, that's just just the shape that life takes, isn't it? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and was it immediately a case of what's next after you finished that? Do you know what? Because it was so long and you were worn out, um, you had nothing else to do at night time apart from watch TV and like update that we knew what day of the week it was and what was on TV that night. So like mm. Monday night wrestling raw, Tuesday night like South Park, and just you just went and you got excited for these. Rep- TV programs you never watched before, and you're just like, "Yes, let's watch that." Um, and what was my point around this? Sorry, what was the question again? I was leading into something. It I was promise. it. It was about when the run finished and what was next. But I'm quite liking the the anecdotes about the TV watching as well. So yeah, you literally get excited and all this crowd crowd around the TV and just watch what was on, and then you feel like that sickness in your stomach. You're like, "Ah, oh, that's the good bit over. Now I'm going to go to sleep and then wake up again and go go through it all." Um, and yes, so at the night time, you'd either watch TV or you'd read or, you know, look at articles. And I remember reading an article about Badwater 135 and thinking, what the hell are those people doing? <laughs> I'd never be able to do that race. I'd never be able to get in. I'd never be able to finish. But something planted in my head and, yeah, I've been back and I will keep going back to that event. It's, um, yeah, during the event the 2000 mile run I was looking at other stuff to do afterwards because yes I was hurting but also I was enjoying the adventure and what was it like going from that into because then you got into sort of ultra racing which is obviously slightly different to to a self-planned adventure and you didn't just go for kind of (laughs) a small small ones you went for like things like the canal slam which are a series of sort of 145 ish mile races across across the season um along the canals and how did it compare doing the races to to the more adventure style challenge um, that's a good question i don't think i've ever had that how does it compare um obviously you're playing by other people's rules the mm-hmm. race rules um, the dates and stuff like that you sort of 
when you, you're doing your own thing and creating your own challenge, you can pick the months which you want to run in and you can look at weather patterns and so on and such. I'm a fair weather runner. Yes, I'll go run in terrible conditions, but I prefer running with the sun. Simple as that. <laughs> I'm not freezing cold at the moment. God, it was minus 80 the day up here. Um, <laughs> I keep going off with this. You got me really excited. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, the canal race in particular is uh, really cool, really eye-opening. Um, the organisers of that are just amazing. Keith and Dick and Wayne, they're the three men behind it. And they've been going for years. And it's a really like a family feel. You're on a canal. It's a narrow well, it's a narrow trail on the side of a canal. You get close and personal with the runners, but also the other crew. Mm-hmm. And they go every couple of miles up the river, up the canal. And you'll see them a good maybe 30 times throughout your adventure, other people's crew. And... They'll offer you drinks, food, and this moral support. So, yeah, it was different to doing your own challenge and whatnot, but it was also special in terms that you got to meet other people going through the same issues, through the same experience as you, which was, that was pretty cool to see. And I've made friends from that canal slam, which I've carried over, and they've come and helped me on my personal challenge moving forward. So it's just a lovely mix of, yes, it was a great it was a great move, to be honest, and it's something I, I, yeah, I'm so glad I did the Canal Race series. And if you ever get a chance, definitely go and do one. It's sixty-five pound to run one hundred and forty-five miles. Like that's a bargain. That's absolutely ridiculous. I'm just selling somebody else's business now, aren't I? <laughs> and you get a crazy prize at the end of it as well, don't you? I think their trophies yeah. are insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get these really heavy medals. Like, I mean, they're really wicked medals, like really heavy pieces. I'm trying to find them. I haven't got them close to me. And then if you finish the series, you get this massive wooden plaque, which they don't tell you about. And the wooden plaque is like a counterweight. So like, it's a piece of wood which falls over unless you put the medals on. You put medals on it and it counterbalances and it stands up. It's really cool bit of um, engineering. That's really cool. (laughs) And so for someone who's born and bred in Wales, as you mentioned, you've kind of had this relationship with Badwater 135, which the which Grand Union Canal is actually a qualifying well race for it, which I assume might have also been some of the lure of doing the canal races too. Um but can you describe the the people that don't know kind of what Badwater is and how your relationship developed with it? Because it was a while before you actually raced it, wasn't it? But you you did the route quite a few times, if I'm correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm addicted to that place. Um, <laughs> it's, genuinely, like Death Valley is probably one of the most awe-inspiring places I've ever been. Um, regardless of the heat, the, just the views and the mountains and the valleys, and just you start off below sea level, so it's just you're looking up from the start onwards. And yes, then you look at the heat, and it's the hottest place on earth. And you're like, can I survive that long? I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, round across America 2010, I think it was 2014 was my first dance with the devil, should we say. And I did not, again, did not the hallow. I'd run quite a bit, but I didn't know anything about bad water in terms of what I, I'd read it, but I hadn't experienced anything like it with the heat or the mountains. And remember, first time I went over there, I knew it was going to be hot, but I did not know it was going to be hilly. And there are three mountain ranges you've got to go over, all on tarmac, but when you add in the heat and go over these mountain ranges, like one of the, let me get you know, a view of the, the race and what the race director usually says. It's like, 135 miles through the hottest place on earth, up and over, three mountain ranges. That's the description of it. 
I should have taken a warning from that, really. I, I guess my mind didn't really clock on the fact that you mentioned about the mountain ranges. But my first year experience was 2014. I went over off my own back, managed to convince my friend John, who was the crew for Running Across America, to come over with me. We started at like 10 a.m. in the morning um, from a place called Badwater Basin, which is where the race officially starts from. And I just, I, I just wanted to experience what it was like and where if I could hang in the toughest of conditions which are out there. And I think heat is one of the toughest things you could possibly run in. Um, that and obviously extreme cold as well. And I, that, it took us like 48 hours to get it done. It was an absolute slog. It was an eye-opener. I didn't realize there were three mountain ranges in there. So you can imagine my face as I started staring up at this 5,000-foot climb, which is 16 miles long. So 16 miles constant uphill to the top. And you can see where you're going. So that in itself is quite intimidating to look at. Mm. Um, and then we got over the first mountain range and dropped down to this valley. It's called Panamint Valley. And that's about 65, maybe 70 miles in. It's huge. It's the famous, if you have a chance to Google it, Google Badwater 135. And um, the image that will come up is a lone runner running across a desert highway um that's Panamint valley it's iconic it's a long stretch of road which is straight it goes across the valley um but as you drop them down it's also uh it's quite an often that you'll see jet fighters training i didn't know there was going to be jet fighters there so this huge i say huge they look like tiny little cars because the valley's so big you can hear them from miles off and it sounds like they're right next to you but out of nowhere this huge like jet engine noise just engulfs everything around you like what, what's going on like you're looking <laughs> and it's actually two or three miles down the road just flying across the bottom bottom of the valley i remember that going oh my god what the hell have we got myself into um i was pretty baked at that time as well because it's like 70 miles in um and then across the valley i thought it was hallucinating because i started to see mules and actually mules are quite common in death valley they can survive the extreme heat i didn't know at the time so i thought mm. i was sort of tripping out a little bit um <laughs> But yeah, managed to finish it. Hung, I don't know how I managed to get it done. Like John had no sleep crew. Um, I barely had any sleep. By the end of it, he was driving me along the side of me, playing Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire out the window at me. Oh, epic. Get, yeah, it's really, that's another story in itself. But when we ran across America, I spent one day playing Billy Joel, we didn't start fire in my ear. I don't, you obviously know the song pretty well and the lyrics are just, there's no really much repetitiveness apart from the chorus. Um, and I learned those lyrics off by heart. So then I was like annoying the other people around me by singing those lyrics over and over again. So I think this was his way of getting back at me, playing the music out the window to me to get me moving forward. Um, and yeah, we got it done. It was 48 hours. It absolutely battered me, but I finished that and I was just like, cool what's next? And then in my mind, I was like, well, could you double it? And I was like, could possibly double it. And 12 months had passed and I went back and managed to double it. So I went across it. And then at the point where I finished the previous year, I turned around and ran back the opposite way. Wow. Um, so that was, that was just, yeah, that was something else in itself. It was, you had, I, I experienced like a dry lightning storm, which is just, there's no rain, but you can see the lightning at the end of the valley. And when you're in a deep valley, you can see lightning hitting the floor, like good 40, 40 miles away. Um, that gets a bit shaky and you get a bit nervous around that. And I'm just running through a, a dust storm. And it was like, a, it wasn't a tornado, but you know like how a tornado like moves across a road? 
the dust storm that just moved across the road, and I, I was like, oh crap, I'm running in that direction. And I was like, oh, what do I do? I, I don't really want to, I, I didn't know what to do. So I just put my glasses on, pulled my cap over my face, and just prayed to God that nothing was going to go wrong, and just ran through it, and it was perfectly fine. But yeah, I've experienced a lot in Death Valley, and so far I've gone back. I've managed to get across it four times unofficially, I went back in 2019 and managed to become the first ever Welshman um, mm. to finish the event, the official race. And then, unfortunately, I went back this year in DNF, so you're never really guaranteed to finish over there. I was lucky to get those first five, but, yeah, this year I went back and ended up in hospital, which was quite an eye-opener. It was a kick in the teeth. But these things happen, and it, I guess it proves me right that, you know, it, you don't do these things for a guaranteed finish and sometimes they don't end the way you want to but again that fuels you to go back and within 36 hours of I'm hoping that my wife's not listening now and I messaged Kerry saying you, you know what's going to happen and she sort of knew what's going to happen but she said it was like the wrong time to approach then that what's going to happen is like, I want to go back and finish it mm. um, it's irrelevant that I finished for me yes I finished it five times already but I failed on my last attempt, so mentally I want to go back and bury that and do it one more time, you know, to say, yeah, okay, I finished on a high with that one. Then again, I'll probably hopefully finish that one and go, all right, maybe I can go back next year. You know, it's one of those things, which um, I obviously have this affiliation with Death Valley National Park and the race in itself, and the race director is an amazing chap. Uh, Chris Costman is lovely, and there's another weird coincidence. His favourite band is The Alarm from Wales. Never knew this before applying. So it was just like, yeah, just everything connected. And I've got a good friendship with Chris now. And we speak a lot about the alarm and everything. So, yeah, it's something which I, I do hold quite closely to my heart. I've got one, three, five. I think you just also have this magical affinity for connecting with people, Reese, is what I'm, what I'm hearing. Like, <laughs> you know, p- people are really important to you. And I think you really do radiate that, that ability to connect with people on a really true level. And <laughs> I'm sure Thank that's you. kind Very of what you challenge and channel into your yeah. own things as well. But I mean, I know that this year was, I mean, I saw on your Instagram that the the sort of things that you wrote about your experience with rhabdo um, and things. I mean, that must have been physically and mentally really tough. Um, do you know what? Yes and no. It, it, it happened. I, I, I appreciate that. It, it was it was a lot closer than it sort of made out in a way. I, mm. I almost died from it, which is something I'm not proud about. I genuinely got to like mile ninety. That was my last memory of the event, and it, it's quite iconic because you leave Death Valley National Park, and I remember seeing it, and my crew, who I was with at the time, Stu, he's like, oh, there's the sign. And I was like, nah, it's not the sign. I was like, is it the sign? And we had this huge debate of, I, I, was, I thought I was hallucinating, but I wasn't. So that was a weird thing in itself. And apparently when I crossed that threshold, I, I did say, Stu, like, oh, this has been fun. And... I didn't think anything else of it. I don't know if it was a subliminal message from what my body was going through, but mm. seven miles down the road, um, they, they pulled me out of the race. My crew managed to uh, spot Rabdo, luckily. It was quite gruesome what happened. I was just running along and, oh God, didn't even break stride and just lost all bodily function. Um, everything was coming out of me, puke um, down the opposite end as well. And you're wearing white, so you can see mm. that quite it's obvious to see what's going on. 
but didn't even break stride, didn't acknowledge it. The crew who was with me at the time was just like, oh, this isn't right. Mm. Flag down the support vehicle because you have your support vehicle within a mile so they could easily get to you. And they were like, oh, this is not good. Um, we did, They just thought I was in the zone. And I was ignoring them all and I was getting into my rhythm and just moving because I was running, running quite good as well. Um, lost, and I, I guess my body losing all its function was its way of screaming out because my mind had gone completely. I, I don't have any recollection of that. And that's not me just lying about that. that uh, genuinely, I had no clue what was going on. My last memory was seven miles away. Um, and they flagged down the race doctor. The race doctor came and saw me. I was just like, you need to go to hospital now. And luckily, we're in the middle of nowhere. No, not luckily. <laughs> no, that's not a good thing. <laughs> I was in the middle of nowhere, but we were at mile like 97. Um, to which it could have been a 100 mile race, no, DNF, 97 miles. It's not 100 miles, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> we were close to the final town, and the town has a hospital, so we were about 20 miles away from the nearest hospital, which mm. was, I guess, a lot. And they just said, Look, you need to get in there urgently, but you don't want to drive like a reckless idiot, you need to get in, in there safely. So the support group, they didn't even, the way they stopped me, because I, I was still running, didn't know what had gone on. They just sort of corralled me towards the vehicle and then opened the door and just like shepherded me into the car whilst I was running. And then it, I, I, they just closed the door on me and that was it. And just started driving. And with not, they locked the doors and whatnot. Again, I don't really have a recollection of this. And they got me to the hospital and the hospital were just, it's, it's like a waiting room. It's not a hospital. It's really in the middle of nowhere. It serves a town of like 2,000 people, so it's really not best equipped, but they managed to save my life in terms of, I, I was in third stage kidney failure, which is what rhabdo leads to. Um, rhabdo is also where the lining of your, your liver or your kidney sort of disintegrates and you start poisoning yourself as well. Um, and they just sort of told me, well, they put me on a bed and kept me there for like eight hours, and then I woke up. I was obviously, you wake up from something like that and you're just like, what is going on? I know what roughly something really bad had happened because in the hospital and um, they managed to get Karis on the phone and she was looking through to me and I did, wasn't really recognising who she was at the time um, and then three seconds later I knew exactly who she was <laughs> um, and they, uh, they then opened the door and these two uh, aeroplane pilots came in and they're aer- aeromedics I don't even know what you call them they're like well we need to get you on a plane now we're going to have to evacuate you a bigger hospital because uh, we don't have the means to be able to look after you here if you if you're going to continue into kidney failure. And I just remember going, oh, God, I don't like flights anyway, so I was a nervous. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is just going to get even worse. Like, I go on a flight now. I just almost died. And you want to throw me on a flight? Um, and <laughs> I think my response to the doctor was. How much is this going to cost? <laughs> and she just came over and whispered. She's like, "Oh, about sixty thousand dollars." I was like, "Ah, okay." <laughs> um, and they, they were sort of adamant I needed to get on the flight. And in my mind, and speaking to Carius and so, I thought I'd know if I was dying. I, I was fully copus mentis. I was I was back with it. And I thought like, if death is, feels like this, and I, I I don't know, um, we give it a get a little bit more time and. They luckily did one more bloods and they did the other bloods and 
but uh, the signals are going in the right direction. They're like, okay, we're doing something right, so maybe he's not going to continue into failure and uh, irreparable damage, potentially death. Um, we'll just give him a bit more time, and luckily I just managed to pull it around, and I think like 10% of people managed to bounce back from that, and I was just one of those lucky sods that um, didn't have to get onto dialysis, and yeah, just got lucky, didn't have to pay $60,000, which also, if I got on that flight, I would have been 60000 for the ride, but then they would have chucked me in the hospitals. So I would have been stuck in the system. So then I would, you're talking millions, it would have been, if I'd got on that flight. Um, I'm not one to risk my... It's very rich me saying I'm not one to risk my life, because I did. Um, but like, I, I wouldn't gamble with my life in terms of... I genuinely felt like I was getting better. I, I didn't think I was going to get worse, and I just wanted them to give me one more shot to prove that I wasn't going in the wrong direction. And mm-hmm. luckily it paid off, and... I'm here to tell the tale when it could have possibly been opposite. And yeah, something I'm quite ashamed of, really, because yes, you've got all this, you've got these, I guess, people out there like, keep going and keep going and put yourself into an early grave. As long as you get to the fit, that doesn't matter. Like, genuinely, as long as you can walk away from someone of your health, um, I think, like, solve a finish or anything like that. It's a DNF, it, it doesn't define me moving forward. It, like, it's just something which, I'm ashamed because I almost killed myself from running. I, that should never happen. Um, yes, I'd lost my mind, so I wasn't making the right decision. Or I would have stopped 100% if I'd known what's going on. And unfortunately, my mind had already gone past that point of no return, and my body took over and luckily did a warning shot, which everybody's seen. So, uh, yeah. But also here in order to, well, to be able to do other things. And I know that, I mean, the... <laughs> the application for for Badwater is sort of like an endurance challenge in itself, and a lot of it is based around. It, it's very holistic in terms of everything else that you do in your life, and obviously your big driver is is raising money for charity through the things that you do. And I mean, yeah, it's kind of a, that horrible sort of death or DNF kind of thing. But actually, you you being here allows you to then raise more money for charity through things and I was wondering like with with the incredible amount that you have done has that motivation always been there and and why is that I don't know the motivation's always been there um it's I guess a selfish way because when times do get tough you can think about charity and the reason why you're running and it gives you an extra layer of grit that you can hang on to and just keep on moving forward um over the years if I helped a very loads of different causes and different reasons behind it everything i've always identified myself and i sort of something which i care about mm-hmm. um and then over the last three years i've sort of specifically gone down the route of child abuse mm-hmm. um it's something which by unfortunately my wife was a child um she was abused by somebody in her family and she's a survivor of that and Genuinely, it's something. It's one of the most inspirational things I've ever come across, if not the most inspirational. To see her, the way she deals with, it, the way she talks about it, it's like it doesn't define her. It's just something which happened to her, and she survived it. It's um, one of those topics whereby we talk about it more. It doesn't live in the dark, and we bring it forward to the light. And it's one of those, again, the mainstream media just have an issue with talking about it. They, before, when you're doing something for a cause which is. I guess, sexy to a, a tabloid or something like that, they'll jump on an article. Whereas now you're doing something with child abuse. And I've had interviews before whereby they put their hand over it and it's been 
do you want us to include that? And you're like, you don't get the freaking point why I'm out here in the first place. This is the reason why I'm running. It's with my wife and her message and her journey. And it's something whereby, like, we did the Wales Coastal Path. We ran the length of um, the UK last year. Those prolonged challenges of suffering and whatnot, they come nothing compared to what carers have been through or any survivor out there. So it's just, I guess, it's a reality check as well that I choose to run. I, they, you know, I always have the option to uh, give up with people are less fortunate than that. And it comes in case for most charities, reason, um, really, why I fundraise for them. There's uh, causes which I deeply care about. And, yeah, I come back to it. It is partly selfish because it gives me that extra layer of not chucking in the towel when times get tough. And yes, I guess that sort of backfired in bad water this year. But if like, my mind had been in the right place, that wouldn't have happened. But it's one of those things. And that is incredible to hear, Reese, as well. And every word, I, as I told you, I'm, I'm a teacher, and um, it does need to be given voice because actually child abuse is a hidden thing and it thrives in in being hidden uh, and talking about it is the best way of putting a stop to it as well as you know raising money for for the causes as you do 100 percent. it's like talking about it i guess one of the cool things which has happened throughout doing these challenges on the wales coastal park or the uk run um people and survivors came out and ran with us and you didn't necessarily they're like friends and family who were just saying I'm going to come out and support you and then they reveal their story to us whilst we're actually out there running and it's something which I'm pretty proud of that we managed to speak to other people as well and I guess talking in itself is therapy for the survivor Mm. and notice how we call them survivors and not victims because they are survivors and they're not a victim yeah I think that I think that's the the correct use of language as well and again giving it a, giving it a different voice and a voice that needs to be heard and I know because um so I watched the documentary Lighthouse in the Dark which is about your your Welsh Coast Path um effort and it was actually that last year way back um that put you on my radar and I, it was off the back of that that I just thought oh I, I need to connect with this with this person because it was just so emotional and you can see how much it means to you and I just wanted to give you the opportunity to just talk about what what it meant to you during that specific challenge um, and what the experience of it was like. Yeah it was um sorry and we uh, initially went into it so that year was Covid year it was when Covid kicked off and I was originally supposed to be doing that 1135 so my body was in really great condition um I say great condition, it was just, it was in runnable condition. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never in a great condition. <laughs> um, and that got cancelled, flights got grounded and whatnot. And I could have dwelled on it and, you know, had a pity party over me, like not being able to run this and rent. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to put my training to good use. And the Wales Coastal Park has always been on my, my hit list, my, uh, my targets of something I wanted to achieve in life. And it's just that window of opportunity presented itself. Uh, me and Keris um, had that, I think it was a 21-day uh, opportunity where we had commitments either side of it, and that was the only option we were going to have all year, and the opportunity to be able to get it done. And I'd have to break the record to be able to get it done in that time. And it was just one of those things. Like, the motivator was for charity and doing the running for child abuse and a couple of other charities as well. Um, it wasn't the record. The record is a nice thing, don't get me wrong wicked that I got it but if you ask me what do I take from it it's always about the charity and the money and the awareness around um, child abuse in particular because it's such a taboo subject 
it was Wales Coastal Park in particular. I think it blindsided us in a, in a way, like, not in terms of how difficult it was. It, yeah, my body broke for a while, but I, I knew it would break and I knew that it would sort of plateau. And then I just hoped to God by the final week my body would be bouncing back and I'd feel a bit stronger and be able to put in a bit of performance by the end of it, uh, which we managed to do. Um, but it was it was a way of reconnecting with the people of Wales mm-hmm. and the land in itself. It was just really cool to look. At one point on the Wales Coast Park, I was just, I think it was outside Aberystwyth, and it was a beautiful, clear, sunny day. You don't get many of those in Wales, so I knew <laughs> it was a special day. Um, and I looked to the right, and I could see the north of Wales, and I could see the coastline. I looked to the left, and I could see the south of Wales, and I could see the coastline. And I was just like, oh my God, like it really hit home how far I'd gone, and then how much further I had to go. But then I don't think there's many places in this world you could go and sit on the edge of a coastal park and look right and left and see the entire length of the country. Um, and then back to the people as well. We were just having random those pop up who are now friends and just give their everything to just keep me moving forward that one more step. Um, I had a chap who I'm friends with, I met with the other day actually, he's a photographer. And he turned up in the most brutal of conditions on the Slim Peninsula. If you ever get a chance, go up to the Slim Peninsula. It's like the jetty out bit at the top of Wales, not Anglesey. It's the bit which is connected to the mainland. Mm. Um, horrendous conditions. And I had my music in. I was just like in a really bad place. And I just looked up and there's this guy. I don't know what. He was almost dancing, sort of doing a monkey impression on the side of this coastal park. And I was like, what the hell's going on? Am I going to get attacked or moped or what? And then I noticed he had a camera and I was like, oh, all right, okay. I'm going to run now and make it look like that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we struck up a friendship from that. I had one chap called Hugo who ran with me for like 30 miles. And then he'd be like, oh, I'm going to go home now. <laughs> all right, okay. Um, I'm getting home. You know, I've still got to keep on running. Like, oh, it's all right, I'll just run back. And like, what? He's just like really like solid local, just knew how to run, knew the area really well, so he could take a shortcut. Anyway, he'd been carrying a gift for me, and um, the gift, he was like, here you go. And I was thinking, oh, Snickers, LucasAid, Pack of the Crisps, or something like that. It's just, yeah. And he pulled out this tube of like white cream, and I was like, what the hell is that? And I couldn't even hide my like surprise. And it was um, reading the label, it was udder cream, so the stuff which they put on cows' teeth. To stop them from having infections. And apparently the locals out there, they use it on their legs. And it is incredible stuff. Like the spearmint flavour, which they uh, he handed over. But he didn't even give me a full bottle. He gave me half a bottle, cheapskate. I'm joking, I'm joking. I can get away with it. Um, no, and it was amazing stuff. Like before I'd even had a chance to like, say no, he'd already whapped some on my arm. And my arm was just going numb in the side. I was like, all right, okay, this stuff worked. Um, but yeah, they're the little things you take from it. And just having people come and spend like even just a mile or so with you just to like, say good luck or people sitting on a bench and just waving you on or clapping you. It was just in Porthelly, like It felt like the whole town came out and they were just like created this guard of honour for me running through and like cheering me and clapping me. And I'm quite, like, you put me in a social situation and I can talk and whatnot, but I, I get quite embarrassed really easily. Mm-hmm. And I just go like, I just don't know. It was just one of those things that really hit me. I was like, surprised by it, and I was really touched by it. I get emotional quite easy as well. As you can probably tell. And it was just one of those things that just sticks with you forever. These people popped out, and this other chap just like stopped me to have a photo with his like Welsh flag. Um, you had like some celebrities pop out and like run with me. I 
Matthew Pritchard, who's the dirty vegan, he's like well known in Wales. For, um, he's an endurance athlete in his own right. He's an amazing chef, and he was part of Dirty Sanchez, which is like a Welsh version of Jackass, which okay. in Wales everybody knows about. And he came out and ran with me, and he was just like that level of energy and that craziness. It, again, it just transcends and it gets you moving again. It was just, uh, yeah, the people is something I'll definitely take from that. Both me and Keris, because people came out to help and support Keris. I think. Sometimes it's neglected or forgotten about that the crew need crew as well. The crew need help and support to book hotels, to get meals. You're on the Wales Coastal Pass. It's not like you can really go and get a takeaway at the, you know, around the corner. You are limited by what you can have. Um, we stayed in the camper van some nights, but if we had the opportunity, we'd stay in an Airbnb or something like that. And, and then you still have the COVID rules as well, because, mm-hmm. yes, it was a window of opportunity where the restrictions were lifted, but you're still having to... Um, you couldn't go into certain places and whatnot without the mask and whatnot. So it's just also that was never education. And this was for the UK challenge next uh, last year, going down the length of the country. The rules changed from like Scotland to England to Wales and back into England. So like my mind, the end of that, I just didn't know what how the rules were. By the end of it, this is one of those weird scenarios you're in from the situation which went on with COVID. But yeah, the Wales Coastal Park is yeah, it, it, both of us are incredibly proud of that, and it's. Uh, I'll probably say for both of us, we, we will go back one day, definitely. Um, I'm looking to Keris now for reassurance that I'm not just stitching it. Yeah, she's knocked on the head and then rolling her eyes. Um, <laughs> so, okay, Keris, yeah. I'll interview you and we can we can have a chat about that. <laughs> I'm going to be honest what actually happened on that point apart from Keris. Like, um, it was cool getting to see Keris every seven or eight miles, but it was also really hard work for her because... She was having to drive, I don't know, if I only had to run seven miles, she may have to drive 30 miles to go around and get to the next meet point. It was like really tough on her as well. And by the end of it, we were both absolutely broken. Like we could not wait for that finish line. And I think, did we? No, we planned the last night to, um, we were going to stay in our house because we lived in cars for the time and it was close to the Wales Coast the farm. And then my coach was just like, yeah, you won't get up as early as if you were like in an awkward, you know, in a, a, a not so comfy situation, yeah. as we say. So he's like, you need to s- spend the last night in the camper van. And I was like, you have an alarm. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm honestly going in bed. And, and then Karis got on board with the coach and she was like, yeah, that's a good idea, actually. So then we, they bundled me into the back of the camper van at like 12.30 at night and then got me back up at 4.30 the next day. Um, with which I was really protesting. I was like, although it's the final day, it felt like I still had a thousand miles to go. Um, I, I was cursing throughout the night because I couldn't sleep. And I was saying to Keris, I can't believe we've blown it so close to the end. Uh, really having a, a really a big old whinge at 2am in the morning to her. And then the next day, it was really hot and I was sleeping pretty naked in the back of the van. <laughs> and Keris was just <laughs> She threatened to let the cameras in if I didn't get out and if I didn't get changed. So she threatened it and then I got changed and then I got out of the van and that's how they got removed again. I love Karis. She's such, she's great. She knows how to get you moving. I think that film does really, one of the things that really touched me was the relationship between you two. Um, and also that it was, it was, you were obviously running, but it was a massive team effort. Um, and what, what it took out of both of you to get, get you to that finish line. And 
I'm interested then how the kind of the John O'Groats to Land's End sort of came about from that and how that compared to the Welsh coast path. Yeah, no, it was, um, again, it, it was always on the bucket list. Um, after the Wales Coast Park, I, I was like, oh, okay, what's next? <laughs> and everybody was asking me, what's next, what's next? And I was still committed to Badwater because it was um, a deferral. It was, it'd been rolled over because it had been cancelled. Um, do you know that race only got cancelled in 2020, not because of COVID, but because there was a huge earthquake at the finish line, which sent boulders like falling down and everything. It was just like... Unbelievable. Sorry, I've got off point there. Um, after Wales Coast Park, I was like, okay, well, bad water will be next year. That, that I can't see COVID um, continuing. Or I, I imagine flights will lift and we'll be able to get over there. Um, sorry, my little one's just trying to speak to you. <laughs> okay, <are> you <laughs> um, And we just, we've been on the list. Bad water fell through again. And we... Um, just took the opportunity. We had, again, a good little window of a couple of weeks being able to get up to Scotland. Keris an amazing planner, so like she will just dot. She loves plotting a route and she'll go dot, 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 dot the length of the country, up and over Ben Nevis, Scaffold Pike and Snowden. And at first I was like, oh, okay, can it be done? And did a bit of research and... It'd been done before previously by a couple of Americans. And I looked at the time and I was like, okay, it's, it's not unfathomable. I think I can achieve that with a bit mm. of a push. And yeah, we drove up to Scotland. It took us a whole day up to Glasgow. And then from Glasgow, we drove up the next morning and just got things going. Um, no, not next day. I can't remember. It took a long time to go. Scotland is not um, justified on the map in the UK. It's absolutely huge. Um, it's like Wales, but on steroids. Um, crazy. And we got to the top and there's not a lot of John O'Groats because we're early in the morning. There's nobody there. Our friend Chris Hewitt came up with us and we just really casually just got going and didn't really, I guess you don't let your mind try and think about the thousand miles which are in front of you. Just go from checkpoint to checkpoint day to day you try to pick places on the map which you're excited to go through um and through scotland was just amazing scenery lots of deer really felt like wilderness um it was a mixture of roads trails it was just the most direct route to each mountain and then getting up and over the mountain but then the mountain in itself was um difficult because you go up one side and actually for me to get an easier way off would come off a different route so then Keris would have to drive miles around the other side to go and get me and whatnot. I remember getting to Ben Nevis and I had to run 30 miles that day just to get to Ben Nevis mm-hmm. and then there was the huge debate of whether I'd go up and over it um, on the same day or, and it was just, I got there and it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and it's a good, I think it's about a 4 hour trip up and down I think I'm not entirely sure, don't quote me on that and the weather was closing in there so I said, oh gonna have to go up <laughs> uh, and I had a friend come with me and he made it about halfway up and then his hamstring went and I was just like oh god and he was adamant he was gonna wait there for me I was like well, no it's pointless waiting there for me I may come off a different way anyway and you're gonna get freezing cold hovering around it's probably gonna cause more of an issue and if you just wait you know just go back down the mountain it'll be all right and I tagged on to another group of three lads who were young really ill-prepared for a mountain I mean they were like jeans and stuff like that nervous like no waterproof jackets and I just, like, they took pity on me. And I was just like, oh, 
God, why something goes wrong with them? And there's nothing went wrong with the new perfectly fine. They were, yeah, they really hyped up. They were doing the free peaks challenge. Okay. So we had that shared interest of going up and down the free mountains, although we were all on our first mountain. <laughs> Sorry, my little one is just... Um... <laughs> He's just been evicted from the, the, the room. Uh, um, He's so excited by the mountains. <laughs> Bear in mind, they didn't have any waterproofs or really ill-prepared. Um, they um, pulled out a spliff at the top of Ben Nervous and just started smoking it. <laughs> what the hell? You've prepared to have a spliff at the top of Ben Nervous, but you haven't brought any of the kit which you need, which was really reckless because the weather closed in and I made sure they got down to a safe mm. position on the mountain. I was just like, I'm, I'm going to have to go. And they were fine. They kept in touch afterwards. And it was just one of those stories. You, you, you got to see these three chaps have a spliff at the top of Ben Nervous in the freezing cold peeing down rain. Um, the night we got to go on trails as well. If you like, the, how was it? West West Island Way. Is it West Island Way. I think there's bits of West Island Way. Isn't there? West Island Island Way. Yeah. I managed to like pretty much do that whole trail down into Glasgow, and then from there on it was a lot of roads down to um, Scaffold Pike. Mm. Um, Scaffold Pike's a beautiful mountain, but it was boiling hot. I remember being at the top of Scaffold Pike. And the water was warm, like the water coming out of the mountain, like in the stream. So it just did not feel like, it just felt like it was being heated up. It was being heated up by the rocks and the weather at the time. Um, and I, I ran out of water on the way coming down the scaffold bike. And my battery on my phone was like 1%. And it managed to stay on 1% for like a good hour um, until I got off the mountain. But it was really one of those panicky moments because I did not know where the heck I was going. So I was having to follow the tracker, but I didn't want to use the tracker too much. So I was worried about the battery dying. Um, not the tracker, the um, GPX, sorry, to just get me off the mountain. And then we um, agreed to meet at a place called, I think it was New Dungeon. And I got off the mountain, took a wrong turn and ended up in a field and then I wouldn't have ended up in this field if I hadn't taken the wrong turn and there was this baby deer like, just there hovering around and had that good couple of minutes just watching it like really close and I was like oh this is pretty cool and I was like, oh bugger I've gone the wrong way so I had to sit around <laughs> that issue and I thought I'd meet Keris to the place called New Dungeon and actually to get done and you know get get, get ready to go to bed and, and then I had that horrible feel I was like oh oh god it's the wrong place. And then I had to carry on down the road for a couple of miles to find Keris in this other location, which was fine. But when you're dying of battery and you, you run out of water, while I had an emergency can of Coke at the top, like coming off there, that had even gone out of it. That was warm and horrible as well. Um, that was another situation we went through. And then Snowden was just like the most easiest of the three mountains. It went perfectly. I had four people come up with me and they all just took care of me, got me to the top, got me off safely. It was amazing. I think like the day before, unfortunately, somebody had actually fallen off Krugoch uh, mm. going up um, Snowden, and somebody had also been hit by lightning on Snowden that same day. And um, I remember my mum messaging Carrie, my wife, saying, oh, "Was that Reese?" Oh. I was like, "No, it's not Reese. Is, is, is his tracker still moving?" She was like, "Yeah." So like, don't worry, it's not Reese. And that was yesterday anyway, so it was perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> and we got off Snowden, and yeah, it was just. You, in a way, Snowden was a finish line in itself because you finished all the mountains and then mm -hmm. you realise, oh crap, I've got to now run the length of Wales and the length of the southwest of England just to get to the finish line. I always get a kick from running through Wales. It's obviously, I'm a Welsh, 
really proud to be Welsh. Running through Wales and running the length of Wales is amazing. But then having to go off the old Seven Bridge back into England really sucked. I really, I was like, oh my God, I'm ready for this to be done now. Um, and yeah, the southwest, again, it's not justified on a map. It's absolutely huge. The roads are just winding. It's really, um, it really messes with your head and you, you're really coming to the end of your tether anyway at that point. And we got managed to uh, get it done. And the final day, bear in mind, we had lovely weather the whole way through. The final day, absolutely peed down. <laughs> There was this like hardly any, it was just disgusting. Uh, one of my buddy runners managed to get clipped by a car um, wing mirror. So you, oh, goodness. And that like stopped him from running, it really like shattered on his hip. Um, so you can give you an idea of how close we were to the traffic. And then to add to all this, Keris was heavily pregnant at the time as well. So um, she was going for the ring and she was crewing for me. So she crewed to me the length of the UK whilst heavily pregnant. Oh my which goodness. Which not a lot of people know. So baby Nye, um, the little guy you just heard then, um, has actually been the length of the UK already, which is pretty cool to tell him when he's uh, old enough to understand. That's amazing. He's a record-breaking baby. Isn't he? Well, yeah. <laughs> and is that a challenge you'd ever return to, or are you done with that? <laughs> I'm one and done with that. I, I value my life too much. Um, the, the amount of close calls I had with traffic, mm. uh, the amount of tarmac which is involved, beautiful, amazing challenge. I recommend it to anybody who wants to achieve it. Um, I'm happy to share any information with anybody that does want it as well. Um, same goes to the Wales Coastal Park. Um, but it, yeah, I just wouldn't go back and do joggle again. I, I've, I've had my fill of that. Um, it was too close, too much tarmac. And just, uh, yeah. I say, I'm saying that, and I love bad water, and it's all on tarmac, so I'm contradicting sort of myself massively there. Uh, yeah, one and done with that challenge for sure. Yeah, all those beautiful trails in Wales, and you just gravitate towards these like hot tarmac. Races. I know, I know, right? It's crazy. And I just wanted um, just to talk about Pegasus. Um, just to give you the opportunity to talk about it and just kind of what from all of those experiences you've kind of now channeled into into your own thing um, and facilitating others to get to their own finish lines um pegasus was born out of um, not frustration but just uh i guess we've been doing other events competitively and Keris was always at an event during on and she sort of just didn't feel that there was much um i don't know they were doing lovely events, but just the care and actually looking after the runner, like mentally and guiding them through the process. Um, so we just, when we were driving through Greece on the way to my brother's wedding, driving through um, the, the range of mountains where like Zeus lives and all, or, you know, all the, the history and the myth, history, the myths around it mm. could be history. I don't know. That's up for a debate, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> and you just get, you just read about the places you're going through and we saw Pegasus, like that is such a cool symbol of like strength, determination, and I guess endurance. And we just carried that over. We'd already had the idea of putting on an event, and on that on that actual holiday, we built up the courage to be able to go ahead with it, and created the route. That route, with the first event finished in my hometown. I'd always had that ambition of putting on an event or a challenge, which finished in my hometown. And that was also one of the drivers behind it. But then also just opening the door to ultra trail running. It, it, it's still a growing sport. It, yes, it's growing rapidly, but it's still relatively small. And it, I guess um, well, 
it's been going on for years and years and years, obviously. But um, our take on the sport just feels that we we want to help people realise it's actually achievable. It's not mm. something which you have to be an elite athlete to do. Anybody can do it as long as you have a sense of adventure. With our events, you can run for eight miles, meet the checkpoint, get some food, cake, crisps, whatever you want. We try to just normalise the situation as much as possible. And you mentioned it earlier on, we, we don't have cut-off times. Um, the cut-off times is a way of alleviating that extra stress which people may focus on. Mm-hmm. Like our, our events go from 30 to 50 miles. And we, our only rule is like, don't pitch up a tent when you're running one of our events. Like, genuinely, that, we will wait. We're on beautiful trails. We're not on tarmac or roads which need to be closed. We're in these stunning locations which... All we have to do is wait and, you know, look after you. It's, 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 it's a pretty cool, bloody job. And we've just noticed over since COVID as well, we've noticed a massive increase in terms of people wanting that escapism. I'd say it's modern-day escapism is what ultra-trail running is. It gives people that sense of adventure. Um, they're safe events. They're not dangerous. It's just about helping people go further not necessarily faster um and you know what the people at the back of the event tend to have the biggest smiles on their faces at the end which is um get a smile off somebody when they cross the finish line is all i could ask for with those so yeah and i bet you've seen some amazing stories unfold as well from that too <laughs> yeah you, you meet some incredible people They're genuinely people now who are really close friends and you get to hear their background and the, the, the trials and tribulations they go through and i guess also, trail running is that escapism. It's that it's, it's therapy as well for some people. They get to go out and actually forget about their life, what's going on in their day to day lives, and they just focus on one point in front of another. And both me and Keris take a lot from organising in terms of like the level of inspiration we get, and you know it, it motivates us to be better people. It motivates us to do more things, and we both continue to do more things like for charity, um, personal adventure, and just living our lives. I think, yeah. You're amazing. And I just have a few final questions, so slightly shorter ones. <laughs> so my first one is, how would you summarise what it's like being a dad? <laughs> Absolutely nerve-wracking. <laughs> I never realised I'd have this level of anxiety around this little, uh, I was going to call him a creature then, he's not a creature. Um, <laughs> he's like pride and joy, seriously. Like, but... Oh my god, the level of worry you just worry about what could, what he could hit his head on. He's just recently started walking, so now you're on your toes constantly. And he's recently been sick as well. It's horrible to see, and it it's, it actually breaks your heart when you, you can't do anything to help them. And you just you, yeah, being a dad has really surprised me massively. Like I, I guess you see it as another challenge as well. You get sleep deprivation sometimes. Um, and I guess following them around and chasing after into good fitness as well. <laughs> that might actually answer my second question, which was, um, what's the hardest thing that you faced? Hardest thing that I faced, um, the heat in Death Valley is completely um, out of this world. I think I've had it up to like fifty-two, uh, which is just you can feel the blood moving around your head. It's hard to breathe. After a while, you just adapt to it. Um, there was a point when I ran across Iceland in 20... Um, 20 sorry, i got characters next to me now. When did we first meet? 2016. 2016 is when we first met. And I met Keris, and then actually I'd already agreed to run across Iceland. 
And after that, I'd also agreed to run across America. So I've met Karis, only known her for a couple of weeks, months, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks. And um, just having to say goodbye to this potential, you know, lovely life. And luckily it worked out and I managed to get the challenges done. But she was always like telling me to go and never telling me to stay, which was like, I was mind blown in itself, which was pretty cool. You could tell that she was, she bought into everything that I was about. Um, but whilst I was over in Iceland, one of the toughest things was um, there's four of us, maybe five of us running across Iceland and we had one support vehicle. But if you're running for 10 hours a day, all you have to do is run a mile per hour difference with somebody else and you'll get a big gap. And imagine that between four people. So there's one support vehicle going back and forth. And I remember it had been like four hours um, since I'd seen them. And I started, didn't panic, but it was getting cold. The weather was coming in. It was getting dark. And I was just remember having to um, literally just keep on moving forward because I knew if I stopped, I was going to get hypothermia, hypothermia and, you know, really go into a bad place. And luckily, just as I was, like, really on my last knees, uh, last legs, last knees, kind of what I was in, the vehicle pulled over, uh, they boiled up a kettle, and they filled up a bottle of Fanta, a plastic Fanta bottle, and gave it to me. It wasn't even a big one, it was a tiny one, but I was cuddling this, like, my life dependent <laughs> on it, like, hovering, shivering in the back of this camper van support vehicle. Um, remember, that was very difficult in itself. Uh, Challenge-wise... There's probably two. Wales Coastal Path obliterated me. Like going into the last week, I, I busted my ankle as well. So I was just hanging on, hanging on, and managed to pull out a final, like, great final two days, which meant I took away the record, which was pretty cool. Um, and then another challenge for completely different reasons was um, we cycle, We were going to cycle from Italy to France, and mm. we pulled. It was like a relay, so if it was me, we'd gone back and forth around the clock, back and forth around the clock. And um, we went to the start in the Rome Coliseum, which is a really cool, beautiful area. You're like a tourist, you're taking photos, you're enjoying the experience. And um, we set the first guy off in the relay, and he, uh, he shot off. And we were like, okay, let's go to the support vehicle, we'll catch him up. We know where we're going to be, and so it'll be fine. And got back to where we thought the support vehicle was and couldn't find it. And like, oh my God, <laughs> we misplaced the support vehicle. Like, we don't know where the hell we are. We're in the middle of the road. We put it in the wrong place. We obviously not tracked, put it down a pin or anything like that. We probably lost it. And we thought, oh my God, what do we do? Anyway, it transpires that we hadn't lost it. It had actually been stolen. So somebody nicked our support vehicle with the spare bikes, all the kit, passports, wallets, phones, everything. They'd taken everything. I mean, everything possible apart from what was in our pockets. And we uh, went, uh, only thing you could do, I was young at the time, I was like, what do we do? Go to an airport, you know an airport's safe. It was like a bank holiday over there, so all the police stations were closed. And went to the airport, phoned home, and like, from my dad, and was like, dad, we, we've, we've messed up, support vehicle's been nicked, we don't have anything. Bear in mind, you still got this one guy who was cycling. We had to stop him. He's just dressed in all white and bike cycling gear in the middle of this airport. And that's quite funny in itself. Um, and he's like, oh, you're an idiot. There's a tracker on the van. And we're like, oh, right. <laughs> oh, wow. So they got the tracker and they gave us a location. And we, um, the first thing you do is you just want to go to that a location and find your stuff and get your stuff back. You just want to be able to touch it and you know make sure it's okay. 
and um, got there and they'd managed to like they'd left the vehicle tucked underneath like loads of trees and like covered it up and stuff and like oh okay well we're just going to take those off and you know oh what do we do now um and when in the vehicle they gutted it i mean they'd taken everything they taken the bike they'd taken all the expensive stuff and then on the front seat was like a black bag and you're like oh my god what's going to be in this black bag and you know, tented, you just opened mm-hmm. it really slowly and looked in, and they'd left our passports. Oh. They had some sort of conscience. Um, they'd left our passports. Like, oh, right, okay. Well, they're obviously not that bad of me. They can obviously care about us a little bit. Um, so we, we quickly got the vehicle towed and put it into some lockup. And anyway, ended up getting somebody else to come out and help us. And we ended up doing the challenge, but we did that challenge. Um, all sharing the same cycling kit. So that cycling kit, which that one chap oh. had, we just rotated through for like two or three days. It was disgusting. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever worn bib shorts before, but they're absolutely foul. When you start putting soda creme and stuff on you, it's really not a nice environment. Um, but the benefit, I guess you can take a positive from that, up until the point where we had the van nicked, we've raised about 500 quid. Um, by the time... We, t- we told the charity, they put a post out within 24 hours. We were over like 10 grand um, wow. raised for this charity, which was just like insane. Just like, wow. And you, you refresh it, there's like a clock and the money just kept on going up. And um, by the end of it, we'd raised close to 10 grand for this charity, which was amazing. So, yeah, I guess we owe a level of thanks to the thieves who tried screwing us over. We got the challenge done and whatnot, but that's why it was a, a, a different sort of tough challenge rather than just physical it was just a lot of uh or being robbed is not a pleasant thing <laughs> no but thanks thanks to the thieves who also left your passports <laughs> yes, very, true, very true and my final question Reese, that was that was a lot of a lot of hard things obviously that you've been through my final question is um what does joy mean to you joy what does joy mean to you, you know, interesting i've come on i was looking at um the Disney website yesterday, they've got a load of joy gear on there. You should buy yourself a mug off there. That would be really? cool. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm thrown in Disney there. You can tell I'm a Disney fan. What does joy mean to me? Um, if you'd asked me this, I don't know, four, yeah, two years ago, yes, running, adventure, being out there, helping charity, that brings me joy. Um, but then also now, in simplistic terms, it's my wife and my child. They bring me the most joy in this world, definitely. Um, but yeah, I think it's just been simple and just sort of taking in what you've got around you and not really wishing for other stuff when actually what you've got around you is pretty bloody awesome. Thank you so much, Reese. I think that's a beautiful point to end on because from this conversation and just connecting with you, it's just been such a delight and a privilege to be allowed kind of into your into your family space as well and as I said kind of at at the beginning and throughout the conversation you are someone who who just has this this warmth and generosity of spirit that just does draw people to you and connect with you and I'm not surprised that people came out onto the Welsh Coast Path and supported you and that people continue to because you are just 
Well, you are a light in the darkness, I think, um, and your wife and your your beautiful baby as well. So thank you, because it, it really is a privilege to know you and to connect with you. And I really hope that your, your wonderful stories, because you're a great storyteller, we could sit here for all night, I think, and listen. <laughs> and maybe we'll have to do that on some runs across Wales. But, but thank you so much for everything that you do, Rhys. Oh, thank you for having me, Fran. Seriously, it's lovely to finally meet you as well. <laughs> and um, you can have your own challenges coming up anyway when you take on the 200. <laughs> we'll chat about that in a second. <laughs> thank you. I'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.